0: October 13th, 2021, was like any other day in my life. I went to work, did my job. I finished work. I headed to the gym, and this night I was going to swim. So put my stuff in my locker, locked everything away, went to the pool, did my swim, felt invigorated, came out. And as I walked to my locker, something was amiss. I I could see my lock on my locker, but I could see inside my locker and that was strange. Something just wasn't making sense to me, and I stared at it for a second, and then as I kind of noticed, the door had literally been ripped off the hinges. Couldn't break the lock, but they ripped open my locker, and they took my gym bag, and so I stood there kind of befuddled. I live in Midlothian, Virginia. It's a relatively safe place. Stuff doesn't really happen uh, where I live and work, but I, w- I was like, okay, it's not all that bad. My, my wallet and my cell phone are in my car, so everything is probably okay, it's stuff I can replace, it's just clothes. Speaking of clothes, didn't have a towel, didn't have any clothes, and I wouldn't say I wear an inappropriate swimsuit, but I do wear a rather tight, small sort of swim-type jammer, and I had to do something about this. So I had to walk to the front desk at the YMCA, wet, pretty inappropriately dressed. Oh, and by the way, I learned they now have video cameras at the Y, which came to my benefit, So that's recorded somewhere for all posterity. It's probably on YouTube. I'm sorry. Sorry if you ever find that video. It just was the reality of what I had to face. So as I stood there reporting the incident, and they were asking me way too many questions, a thought crossed my mind. Where are my car keys? I didn't think, where are my car keys? You know, in my bag, my bag is gone. And then another thought crossed my mind, which was, couldn't have stolen my car, There's no way they could have stolen my car. I know they didn't steal my car, but I'm going to walk outside, still dressed like that, relatively nice fall evening, only to find out that they stole my car. So in a matter of moments, a relatively normal, docile day turned into me losing my clothes, my phone, my wallet, my keys, and my car. Maybe to make matters worse, and all of that was the day before my company had just implemented two-factor authentication. So I can't get on a computer. I can't do my job without my cell phone because it can't register who I am. Like, my life is literally upside down. Now, friends, I will tell you, I did not go to the YMCA that night with any known enemies. But, man, I made one really, really quickly. Really quickly. Really quickly. I went from just general frustration to indignation to seething anger to rage. Have you ever been treated unjustly through no fault of your own? You wanted justice? It can be really difficult, depending on the circumstance, to be merciful. Like, wrongs have to be righted. Justice must prevail, right? We go Old Testament in those moments. Now, listen, I know having your car stolen is an extreme example, And hopefully it's a one and done for me, right? Like I would not have been able to identify with that until six months ago or so. But let me make it much more simple. Maybe you are treated unfairly at your job. Maybe you are at war in your marriage. Maybe you think your parents are your enemies because they are just far too restrictive and they don't trust you. Maybe you think your children are entirely disrespectful and not thankful for all that you have done for them in their lives. I could go on and on and on. You don't have to have your car stolen or some heinous act to be done to you to have an enemy. Maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's just simply people that hold a different social or political or cultural or theological view from you. Maybe, maybe, worst of all, you are not vaccinated, and now you are a social pariah, right? You are the enemy of all that is good and right in the world. You don't have to look very far in the news cycles of our culture to see that that it seems like everyone is an enemy to someone, and the cancel culture is raging. These ambassadors, whoever they are, that that these tidal waves of of canceling happen uh, seem to make no distinction between liberal or conservative. I'm just amazed. It's every day. It's like, who's going down today when I look at, the internet, if you've not experienced the consequences of having a worldview that is not mainstream and being canceled because of it, it's coming. It's coming. How do we live in a world where the gospel is considered hate speech and we may be canceled for proclaiming it? More to the point, how do we respond or treat those who are our enemies and want to do harm for us when we're simply being faithful for living the Christian message, the gospel that we are called to preach? Now, friends, there are numerous scriptural mandates we could turn to on this matter. Today, I just want to consider one that that I have been reading and thinking about for a while, and so you get the opportunity to walk along with me as I've tried to apply this text to my own life. And I want to stress that. Uh, This is not a text I do well with. This is a text that exposes a lot of hypocrisy in my life. It'll probably do the same for you. But that's a good thing. We want to be, we don't want to be ignorant. Romans chapter 12. Let me just put the setting here for you. We read the whole chapter this morning. Charles just read it for you. This is... In Paul's writings, very often in his epistles, he moves from right doctrine, right theology, orthodoxy to right practice, or what you may hear theologians call orthopraxy. It's it's living out the truth of this message. And in chapter twelve, he's making that transition, and that that behavior is almost always begins with how you live it out in the church. And so he summarizes here the outworkings of the rich, deep theology of the gospel in all of Romans, chapter one through eleven. And he calls us here to live a primacy with a a life of sacrificial worship and a heavenly mindset. Look at verse 1. I beg you, I beseech you, I appeal to you, brothers, believers, by the mercies of God, this gospel which you now know and stand in to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your worship. This is your act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, of your mind. Listen, if you hear nothing else, understand this. Everything that we're going to talk about in verses 14 through 21 emanates from this foundation. Put simply, obeying the admonitions towards those who oppose you is an outworking of our spiritual service of worship and heavenly mindset. It is an application of those truths. Paul continues. He places primacy on our relationships in Christian community by talking about humility. Look at verse 2 don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And you shouldn't think very highly of yourself at all because of what the gospel says about you. Rather, we're to live our lives in in fellowship, exercising the grace, these grace gifts that God has given to us, and these gifts are going to differ. We all serve a different function in the body. Just think about all the different pieces of your body, and God ordains you to have a gift. And so he says, take that humility, put it into action, verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, all the members don't have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them in proportion of our faith. So we're living this thing out in Christian community as a spiritual act of worship and service. We're honoring God in that context. And I really think the Zenith happens in verses 9 and 10 here, where he basically says, let love govern all. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love one another. And so that's really the foundation of what's happening here. And then we have this transition in verses 14 through 21. And let me just frame it a little bit here. There is some debate among Bible students, Bible scholars, that are asking the question, does this really apply to inside the church and outside the church? There's language in here of one anothering. It's repeating some of the same ideas of honoring, loving, being humble. But it's wrapped... The beginning and end is wrapped in this idea of persecution and oppression and enemies. And so I think it probably applies in in both contexts, believers to unbelievers, but I think there's a, a strong emphasis here talking about our relationships outside the church, how we respond to those who are enemies of the gospel. So let me just say it this way. Our act of heavenly motivated, sacrificial worship of God transcends relationships inside the church to those outside the church as well. You don't get to just behave this way towards believers when it's comfortable and easy. God wants us to respond this way to enemies of the gospel because as we're going to be reminded this morning, that was us before Christ redeemed us. We must have the same humble, sacrificial, merciful attitude to the enemies of the gospel as we do to fellow believers. So as we begin this morning, I just want you to think about two questions as we move through this text. Who are my enemies? Or who do I consider to be an enemy? And how am I treating them? And, and maybe even more insightfully, though this passage doesn't call us to this, ask yourself this question. To whom am I an enemy? To whom am I an enemy and how I treat them or behave? Simply put, verses 14 through 21, I think, talk about overcoming opposition. And here's the main thesis of the passage. Apply gospel humility to others. Do good to those who oppose you and trust God with your reputation. Apply gospel humility to others. Do good to those who oppose you and trust God through all of it. So the first point verses 14 through 16 is just this. Respond to others with a gospel-centered humility. Respond to others with a gospel-centered humility. And I have 2 subpoints here that I think really just help my mind kind of wrap around the main thrust. And the first, in verses 14 and 15, is just, just be appropriate. Be appropriate in your relationships and your responses. And in verse 16, be humble. So let's look at verse 14. He frames this section with these admonitions, these positive and negative admonitions. And Paul says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do you notice that Paul repeats the word blessing here? Why? Why? Because blessing someone who is opposing you is really easy, isn't it? It's really easy for someone that's persecuting you to bless them. No, it's not easy at all. I think it's as if Paul is writing it and he says, bless them and he can feel our argument. Wait a minute. Paul's like, mm, no, you heard me right. I didn't stutter. I'm telling you, I'm calling you, bless them and do not curse them. When it comes to opposition, I think most of us have really two responses. We flee or we fight. You flee or you fight. You run from it or you're like, bring it on. More probably of a fighter myself, not a good response, right? Neither one of them is a good response. Paul says instead you should bless, which literally means to want or to desire or to ask for God's favor upon them. Let me say that again. To want, or to desire, or to ask for God's favor on those who are what? Persecuting you, persecuting you. Our response, and Paul says don't do it, is a thoughtful cursing, right? That's the opposite. To ask God to to pray the imprecatory Psalms, to ask God to rain fire down from heaven upon them for the injustice, now you're all wondering, when my car was stolen, how many blessings did I wish upon this individual? Zero. zero at that moment. I was raging. I, my life was turned upside down. I was not happy. I didn't stay there, I can tell you that. But my initial response was not a good one. Friends, responding to opposition and asking God to bless our persecutors demonstrates a heart that has been humbled and understands its own moral corruption and remembers what God has done for us in the gospel. That's why we start this whole context of being humble and understanding by the mercies of God, verse 1, that have been given to us in Christ. So an appropriate response to those who persecute us is to bless them. Second, Paul extends it to really, I think, what are more sort of overall areas of life. Look at verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I think what the point here is he's really talking about responding appropriately to the needs in front of you. Don't bring a joyful person down, maybe because you're not joyful and you don't want them to be elevated, or don't flippantly try to raise a person up who's in deep sorrow, demonstrate appropriate gospel responses knowing the needs of the moment and responding accordingly i think this has echoes of first thessalonians 5 verse 14 where paul admonishes us admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted help the weak be patient with all know who you're dealing with and respond appropriately to that moment This is going to require patience and care and engagement and life on life, being in relationships so you know who they are and what they're going through, and then respond appropriately. Blessings and appropriate care are outworkings of a proper view of yourself in the gospel. And it is only with this in view that we'll have the foundation to respond because the next thing he says is it's not enough just to be appropriate. Your perspective has to be humility. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Listen, friends, harmony comes by humility. Harmony comes by humility. If you think you are inherently more valuable or right or deserving, You will not see the need to bless or to weep with or to rejoice with others because you're only going to be thinking about and consumed with yourself. If you think better of yourselves, you won't be thankful for others and the blessings in their lives. You'll want to bring them down off that pedestal because you want it for yourself. If they're hurting, you might be like, well, they probably deserve where they are if you're thinking only about yourself. He says, don't be haughty. Don't think that you're any better That's not wise thinking. You're unwise if you think that. Put succinctly, if you think a lot of yourself, you will often be inappropriate in your responses to others, and you will not be able to demonstrate a sacrificial life of worship to God. So let me ask you, are you, believer, consistently at war with another person? Are you actively in a state of enemy engagement if you are this passage is saying there's a pretty good chance you think way too highly of yourself why do we fight why do we war james tells us because we want and we don't get and so what do we do we take up the weapons of warfare because i'm right and you're wrong and i'm going to let you know you're wrong and i'm going to beat you to death until i get there right that's kind of what happens in relationships Also notice that Paul doesn't just say, don't be proud. He assumes we're proud. There's a command here. What does he say? You have something to do here. Don't be proud, but what? Go be around non-proud people. Associate with the lowly. This is on-the-job training. You need to be an apprentice. Go find people that are low and be around them and learn humility. Friends, I have not traveled extensively. A few times in my life, I've had the chance to go to really, I think, impoverished countries. And I've been able to spend time with people that are really poor, really poor, of low circumstance. And I will tell you, every time, it go, it, every time I go, it, it decimates me. It decimates me. It is not hard, even though I live in an affluent area, to find people around me that I think have so much more than me. And, and I find myself struggling with, well, why do they have it better than I have it? Go to a third world country and see what you have. I think every American should at least spend a week or two on a a mission field every year just to get some perspective, because we don't have perspective. We should actively seek out and place ourselves in context where we are reminded of how gracious God has been to us. If not physically, if not monetarily, in the gospel itself, of primacy in the gospel. If you want to learn to be humble, spend time with humble people who have either been humbled by choice or by circumstance, and you will learn humility. So are you acting appropriately in the gospel? Are you responding in humility? Are you faithful in gospel proclamation, even in the face of opposition? If so, how do you respond to that opposition? Are you quick to show God's mercy and patience? And do you truly ask God to pour out his favor on them? Uh, between services, I talked to Paul. He came up to me and we talked, you know, who's an evangelist. He's out there every day. And I, I thought about him a lot when I was writing this message. Like, like, Paul does not have to deal with the issue of are you being faithful for gospel proclamation, right? But his opportunity for application of people that hate him for it is abundant, right? It's overwhelming. And he said, yeah, it's a a constant challenge to to want to think to bless in the face of that kind of hatred. Friends, do you actively seek to care for others and associate those who are in need? I don't think anybody here can answer any of those questions totally in affirmation. I mean, there is opportunity to grow here across the board. So I just want to encourage you. If you think about it, and as I've thought about this passage, I've been reading it for a while, like I'm just overwhelmed by my hypocrisy, right? And so I get overwhelmed with how much relational damage I'm involved in on an ongoing basis. And I could be like, I couldn't possibly overcome this. You, you can't. In the gospel, God will give you the grace to. But listen, just, just think of one relationship, one setting, one response that you know does not honor what God wants of you from this passage. And just do that one thing, right. Just do one thing. And then when you do the one thing, try to add another thing. And just slowly chip away at this mountain of pride that exists in our lives. Friends, opposition can be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's minor. Sometimes it's intense. Paul's not going to stop there. He's really going to address real and hard pain with this issue. How do we respond when people commit real and true evil Against us. The second point is that we are to resist retaliation and rest in God's providence when wronged. Resist retaliation and rest in God's providence when wronged. So I'm going to take a second here and just set the the context of this passage. The first three verses we looked at are really kind of this command, negative positive command by Paul. But in, in verses 17 through 21, there's a real order. There's a real structure here. Every Bible. Uh, a commentator that I read really agrees with this, and I think it's important to understand it because Paul uses an argument here where he basically parallels verses 17 and verse 21. Really talk about not doing evil. They're not exactly the same, but the theme is don't do evil. Verses 18 and 20 are talking about the good we do in light of not doing evil. But really, in the middle verse, verse 19, which is the the central thrust of the passage, is we are to trust God with the results. Do what God commands you to do and leave the results up to him. And that's where we find to to resist retaliation and rest in God. So we're going to go through these one by one, but understand that's really the argument of the passage. So similarly, just a couple of, of themes that I think capture what's being said in these verses. Verse 17, be honorable, be honorable. Look there. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. This should immediately call to mind, right, the passages in the Old Testament of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, which, to be clear, so people understand that, that that is talking about equity, right? Like, in the case of my car being stolen, would it have been equitable to go then steal his car? Well, he didn't have a car. For the record, I did steal my car back. He abandoned it, and I found it, and I did steal it back. So I don't know if that really counts, but... There's some equity there, right? But what if he stole my car and I blew up his house, right? That would be inequitable. That would be vengeance. That's what that passage is talking about. But it says here, don't do that. Even, don't even be equitable in retaliation or repayment. Don't do that. I think Paul is, is referencing, Rick's already preached on this in Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus said. The idea is, is mercy should, should trump justice when you are responsible. Mercy should trump justice when it's up to you. Matthew 5, 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. He is not saying that justice should be set aside, but just in the gospel to God's redeemed people, Mercy triumphs over evil. Leave justice to God. You be merciful. You leave the justice to God. Why? There's many reasons. I I think the first and foremost is he's the only one that can equitably dispense it. You are biased. I am biased. Right? In, In the world of justice, when I am wronged, I have a hammer and everybody else is what? A nail. That's what happens because I'm biased. Paul is clearly speaking here to Christians beset by evil opposition, non-believers. But I want you to look carefully at the passage. He says, we are to do what is honorable in the sight of whom? All. That's everyone. That's believer and unbeliever alike. To do what is honorable here means to do what is virtuous or or beautiful. It It is remarkable. There is a sense in which we respond in these moments that a watching world sees a lack of retaliation and mercy in the face of evil. And unbelievers say, that is remarkable. That is otherworldly. That's how we should respond. And Paul says it's not just enough to, to not repay, but we should seek to disarm our enemies by not retaliating. The second point is be peaceful. Look at verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. That same all there, it's everybody in view. If cursing and retribution are what we want to do, then peace is most often obtained by laying down the weapons of our warfare. The idea is choosing not to exact justice when it is possible, right? You don't respond. That's how peace comes about. Notice Paul exhorts us to be honorable and peaceful with everyone. Who's responsible here? Is it up to your enemy to issue the terms of peace? Is that what it says? No. As much as it is possible with you, you live at peace. Will they respond? Will your enemy stop attacking you? I don't know. But is the command for you to continually put down the weapons of warfare to seek for peace as much as you can? Yes. That is our responsibility in this passage. Now, I don't want you to do this to me or for me, okay? But I'm going to ask you a question, and it's only fair if I ask it to you. You should be asking it of me. I'm terrified of the answer. If if someone was to hand out a survey of your interactions with others, in person and anonymously online, and asked them to check boxes that described how you interact with others or treat others, especially those with whom you disagree. And they had a box that said, peaceful. How often would they check that box to describe the way you interact with them? How often would they check that box? What if it's not even how you verbally interact or what you type anonymously on the internet, what you think and how you feel about What are you doing to seek peace in the volatile relationships in your life? Are you contributing to warfare? Are you seeking for peace? What can we do to improve? Like, how, how can we get better here? For me, it's pretty simple. For me, in most cases, it's just to not respond. And if you know me, you know how hard it is for me not to respond. But God has been teaching me this for months for months i have adult children i have one who still lives with me and he's right about everything the, the rules of warfare the opportunity for border skirmishes are literally present every moment of every day and i have to constantly be asking lord is it worth it what what, what am i going to gain from this is what i'm about to say going to be helpful or is it just going to spark a wildfire of arguments hard. It's hard to just close your mouth. The retaliation for wrong suffered is hard to overcome. It requires a peaceful humility and trust. And so Paul moves to a central point of the text, which is that trust factor. Paul does not say that justice is set aside. He simply calls us to forego our perceived rights or our abilities to defend ourselves and leave that to God. I think verse 19 is encapsulated by application with just this thought. Be merciful. Be merciful. Look at verse 19. Beloved brothers, Christians redeemed by grace, who have seen according to the mercies of God, verse 1, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. Bill mounts in his excellent grammar says this word never avenge this idea means absolutely under no circumstances absolutely under no circumstances should you take your own revenge it's basically a reframing of the first part of verse 17 to repay evil is to be vengeful to right the wrong to get your pound of flesh to rescue your reputation however you want to defend it don't do that don't do that challenging right but what about the wrong, Rich? I mean, isn't God a just God? Yes, he is. And that's what Paul says next. It's not your responsibility. You are not neutral in the conversation. Leave it to God. Look at verse 19. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says You don't repay. You let God repay. You let the just creator of the universe who absolutely is perfect and sinless and knows right from wrong, let him be the arbiter not you. Remember who is writing this and to whom he's writing it. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. The persecution at that church is ramping up at the moment, and it will just skyrocket in the next coming decades. Paul himself was unjustly imprisoned at Rome. It isn't like he's telling you to do something that he is not going to experience or understands is happening. He calls us to let God handle these matters because he alone is the fair and equitable impartial judge my wife will confirm this i have no law degree i'm not smart enough to be a lawyer and yet i elect myself to the judicial bench in my life all the time raining down vengeful decisions against people all the time when i get behind the wheel of my car right like it is it's war I'm going to right all the wrongs of all these people who can't drive correctly. You will not be surprised to know that on the way here this morning, some guy was riding my tail the whole way, and I'm like, Lord, okay, 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 I get it. Simple application, right? I'm not trying to be trite about that. But even if I don't act on them in my heart, I can want some retribution. I don't like this statement. I've generally sort of just said, you know, it's bad theology. But there is a theology that says let go and let God. And if there's ever a place where I found it to be applicable, it is this passage. Let go and let God. Let go of your reputation. Let go of your fighting. Let go of your rights. Let God deal with that. You don't repay. You just live in a thankful, gospel-centered humility, offering sacrificial worship. And that must be a growing characteristic of your life. But listen. Listen. Even though let go and let God is better theology here, that's really not what Paul says. What he says is, let go, let God, and then lavish blessing, tangible demonstrations of love and grace and goodness in its place. Verse 20, be generous. Be generous. Look at what he says. To the contrary, don't do what I said not to do a second ago, but instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't just resist retribution. Be abundantly generous in its place. It's it's like repentance, right? Don't do this thing, but do this instead. And, And the good to do is to be generous. The verbs here, present, ongoing, continuous, habitual action. If your enemy keeps slapping, you keep being generous. Those are the commands. So you're asking, So is it it only like the enemies that are hungry and thirsty? Is that the application? Like, is this the guy who steals my lunch money? Is that the only time to apply this? I don't think that's what it's saying. It's talking about real, tangible ways of care, meeting needs, serving them in real, generous, tangible ways, ways that a watching world looks at and says, that is beautiful, that is honorable, that is amazing. Listen, not responding with vengeance is only half the answer. Being quiet is not enough. Paul calls us to a greater standard in the gospel. Bless them. Bless them. Do good to them. Overwhelm them with your generosity. So the next time someone aggressively overtakes you on the road to get that one spot ahead of you, to get onto the Poe White faster, just realize you're just feeding them. You're just giving them something to drink. Let them have it. Why does it matter? There hasn't been much of this reported in the news, but I've seen some clips That there are Ukrainian nationals who are giving shelter and food and care to Russian soldiers who basically find themselves in difficult straits. These people coming in to overwhelm them and to attack them and to potentially kill them. And they are giving them safe harbor. What an incredible example of how to apply this passage. I don't know if these people are even Christians. How much more should we model a behavior like that? because of what God has done for us in the gospel. I'm working on not wanting vengeance. But this tangible blessing stuff, man, it's just, it's just amped it up. It's challenging. So let me ask you a question I'm asking myself. Do you have an intentional habit of seeking to do good to those who oppose or hurt you as a characteristic of your life? Do you have an intentional habit? That's what we need to have here. To to do good, not just not retaliate, not just to be quiet, not to just put down our weapons of warfare, but to in turn do good to them. Seek peace by doing good. So some of you astute Bible students are looking at this and you're thinking, but but Rich, wait a second. There's the end of the verse. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Hey, I can feed him? I can give them something to drink, or I can go scorched earth. If I got three choices, what am I picking, right? The third one. I'm going flamethrower, because that feels pretty vengeful, right? It's not the point. That's not the point. There's much debate about what this passage means. Genuinely, I go one of two ways. I think there's two main interpretations, I think both have validity. I can tell you, I don't know. I don't know what it means entirely. It's one of two options. One is it's talking about coals of conviction by our kindness that God will bring onto them to convict them of their behavior, might use it towards regeneration, towards the gospel of salvation, or just to stop being an enemy. Or, and maybe more likely, is, is the passages in the Old Testament where God uses fire, like the stone he used to Isaiah, to purge his lips, right? So he was holy and purified. It's a judgment sense. It's dealing with the sin, and this might be a sign of judgment. Both of them have merits. I would simply note that, that is a yet future act that you are not in control of. Your responsibility is to be generous. How God in his sovereign plan works it out is not up to us. We're not in control of that. Trust God with it. Trust God to do what God's going to do. Our responsibility is to lavish and to bless them and to be good in real tangible ways. And let God do what he's going to do both with their lives and our reputation. Paul's summary exhortation wraps up with this admonishment. And it's getting back to what he really said in verse 17. Be good. Don't do evil. Look at verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the irony here is when we think that we're repaying like for like, that we're just being equitable and it's sort of morally net neutral. It's not what Paul says. He says that that when we act in vengeance, we are in effect acting with evil we're responding evilly and it isn't like it's just neutral the idea here is if you do that evil will overcome you you are going to respond evilly and the trajectory does not look good you will continue to respond evilly you're either being overcome by evil or you're overcoming evil with good that's that's it you're not neutral in this you're not on the sidelines you're not neutral in the fight you're actively engaged So the the command here is to overcome evil with good. Do these things, be honorable, be peaceful, do good to them, trust God. That's what we do. That is how we overcome the evil in this passage. This idea of good here is morally good. It demonstrates this sacrificial love by which we give what is undeserved to the undeserved. And it demonstrates a humble, thankful, sacrificial heart that knows what God paid to redeem it in the gospel. So friends, let me ask you, how are you doing right now? I I genuinely want to know how you're doing so I could, I could weep with you or or mourn with you or rejoice with you. But I'm just asking in general, like as you hear this, right? A few bits of laughter this morning at my expense, weird bathing suit, stolen car, little smiles there, but you're not smiling and and you shouldn't smile at this passage. This is an overwhelming passage. When you look at this passage, and you think about your life. And as I've looked at my own life, From the outside perspective, I don't think anybody would accuse me of this, but I think just definitely in my heart, I'm just a raging hypocrite. I'm a raging hypocrite. We should be uncomfortable right now. All of us have those to whom we do not love, bless, or generous to. Maybe you're thinking this morning, I'm the enemy here. I'm the one that's constantly at war with others. Maybe it's not even a personal interaction. Maybe it's a personality or someone you watch on TV and you yell at because you can't stand the views they have. We're coming into the political season again, right? We thought the last one was a whirlwind. I mean, buckle up. I don't know what's going to happen in the next two years. I think it bears reminding for our hearts that this is not a call that God issues or commands to us without having first demonstrated it in a way that is beyond description. Go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6. I hope you were thinking of this passage. Looked at chapter 12. This is the reality of who we were and are in the gospel. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, right, you want to talk about humility, unable to help ourselves, at the right time Christ died for who? The godless. That's who we were. If you are a Christian here this morning. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Think about how this applies to chapter 12 and God's vengeance and wrath over sin and being evil. Verse 10, for if while we were what? What does it say? Enemies. Of whom? God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we are also rejoiced in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, brothers, and sisters, please hear this. There is no greater goodness shown to enemies that ever has been or will ever be again than Jesus Christ giving his life towards his enemies, though he had done nothing to deserve it, so that we might get his life and be counted in him as righteous before God. There is no greater good that will ever be done towards enemies than what Jesus did for us in the gospel. Amen? All he's saying is for us to just as an act of worship replicate that To our enemies. Show them God's love for enemies and how we treat them so they can just see a glimpse of the greatness of our God. Is that unreasonable? Is that unreasonable? If you think it is, you're probably not saved. If you understand what God has done for you in the gospel, it is more than reasonable. Any act of goodness on our part towards an enemy is just a small act of thankful worship for what God has done for us in abundance in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for this text that just cuts us to the quick. Lord, it doesn't take prisoners, addresses us where we are. Uh, it, is, it strips us of our pride. It lays us bare. It helps us see tangibly, Lord, what, what you call us to and what you have done. We see how hard it is to forgive our enemies, and then we think what you have done to forgive us. God, by your spirit, I pray you would just give us the grace and ability to be loving, gracious, and good to our enemies because you were abundantly loving and abundantly good and abundantly gracious to us, your enemies. We can never thank you enough, Lord. We can just try to honor you by living in such a way that reflects the greatness of what you have done for us in the gospel. pray this in Jesus' name.